This is week number 22 in our series. We've been going through the book of Samuel, which is divided into two volumes, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And we're going through it slowly, relatively slowly, around two chapters a week. And today we're hitting two more chapters. This is week number 22. And we've covered a lot of ground so far. The big picture of the whole series is to recognize the interplay of the things that we pursue and the God who pursues us. The things that we're chasing after and the God who is chasing after us. And we've seen this theme show up time and time again where people pursue God and then really interesting things happen. Or we've seen times where people pursue their own benefit. They pursue their own aims. They pursue their own recognition or something. And the good stuff doesn't happen in those times. And in fact, one of the things that we learned last week is that when David stopped actively going on the pursuit, advancing the kingdom that God had called him to advance, when David stopped doing that, he began to linger back in his palace area, linger back in Jerusalem. He began to tell other people to do things for him. He was sending other people to go to war. And as he stopped kind of following God's will for his life, he found himself in this place of temptation that led to a place of sin, as we saw last week where he coerced Bathsheba into sleeping with him. And even though she was married to one of his friends, he still slept with her. He got her pregnant, and then he killed his friend as a result. And so David, he's guilty of adultery, guilty from certain perspectives of rape, guilty of murder, And all of that happened last week. And at the end of the story, we see David repent. And he pleads with God for mercy. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you mercy, but there's still going to be some consequences. One of the consequences is that God predicted that some of David's own wives would be raped by someone close to David. And God said, okay, that's one of the consequences that's going to happen. It's not that God says, I'm going to do it. God is just predicting to David what's going to happen. Next week, we'll see that story happen. Today, we find out why it happens. Today, we find out the machinations, the structures of everything that goes into leading to the consequences. In other words, today, what we're going to see is that even though God forgave David, there's a lingering set of consequences in David's own heart that leads to some really terrible stuff. In fact, I'll give it to you this way. David, this leader, has stopped following God for just a moment. He's in like a hiatus of not following God. He's protecting himself. He's, you know, wallowing in his own self-pity in a lot of ways. He's not following God. And what happens all around him is that evil begins to spread. If you're taking notes, write that down. And it's not just with David. It's with leaders in general. When a leader fails to follow God, evil spreads. This happens time and time again in human history, and it's especially vivid in the life of David, in the story of David. So we're going to be reading chapters 13 and 14 today, and we're going to see some of this uh, development. But I want to remind you that it all comes out of David's own character flaws. It all comes out of his own problems that he hasn't dealt with. I'll highlight some of them for you. Remember, right after he became the king, he wanted to pursue peace. And so there were people that ordinary kings would kill that David didn't kill. He let them live. 
In fact, he gave them places to live. He encouraged them. He didn't kill his former enemies. He let them live. And we see that David is a guy who is passionate for peace. But one of the character flaws that sometimes associates itself with someone who's passionate for peace is a lack of interest in conflict, an avoidance of conflict. And even though David was a mighty warrior earlier on in his life, even though he's the one who defeated Goliath, we also see David as a character who wants peace so badly that he will avoid conflict. He will avoid conflict. And so that's one of his character flaws. Another one of his character flaws, we've seen it already, he exploits women. He had a whole bunch of women. He married more women. And then that wasn't enough. He raped Bathsheba. And so he's exploiting women all over the place. And that's a character flaw that even though he repented of the one sin, the character flaw is still there. And then, of course, that just leads to this whole big picture idea. And it's something I want you to think about for yourself, something I'm thinking about for myself. And it goes like this. Even if God forgives me for a sin, there is work in my heart that still needs to be done about that sin. Does that make sense? Even if God forgives me for a specific act of sinfulness, there is still work that needs to be done in my own heart with regard to that sin. Something led me into that sin. Some character trait in me made me think that sin was okay. And if I don't deal with that internal stuff, then that sin is going to spread like a virus. And not just only in my own life, it's going to spread to the lives of people around me. And that's what we find in chapter 13 and 14. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 13. It says this, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. And you're like, wait a minute, this is gross. One guy falling in love with his sister, and it didn't say Tamar was Amnon's sister. So it's like, wait, okay, here's how it works, okay? David, I told you, had multiple wives. Amnon was his firstborn from his first wife. So Amnon would be the next guy in line for the kingship. He's the number one son from the number one wife, okay? But then there was another woman who gave David a son, and we don't hear anything about him from that point forward. Maybe he died while he was young. We don't know. And then there was a third woman who gave birth to Absalom. And so Absalom is David's third son. There was Amnon from this woman, and then there was another woman, and then there was a third woman who gave birth to Absalom. And so these guys are kind of brothers, just half-brothers, because they have the same dad. And Tamar, or Tamar, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Tamar is the sister of Absalom. So she is, uh, has the same mom that Absalom has. Now, back in this day, some ideas about how closely a person could be related and get married were different than they are today. And so back then, a half-sister was a valid wife. There were many biblical people who had half-sisters for their wives. We know today that genetically that is ill-advised. It leads to a lot of issues. Um, we don't even think cousins should get married these days. But back then, this kind of thing was sort of okay. Not entirely okay, just sort of okay. And you will hear today one person who thinks it's not okay, and so he does something that's not okay. And you'll hear another person who says it's kind of okay and suggests we should do it this other way that's kind of okay. Anyway, we've got Amnon and we've got Absalom and Tamar. 
That's how this whole family tree thing works. But let's keep going. Verse 2. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her because she is his sister, half-sister, and he doesn't think he can do anything to her. She's a virgin. That's another piece. Because if she's a virgin and he does something to her, he could be found out. If she's not a virgin and he does something to her, then it's just her word against his or something along those lines. But there's, there are ways for people to figure out things. And so he's like, it's impossible. There's also a double entendre going on here. The Hebrew language is a language I don't understand very well, but I can read commentaries enough to know some things that are going on. And the word impossible here could also be translated as awesome. And so this guy is kind of thinking it would be awesome to do something to her. It's gross. We should admit that. This situation right here is already beginning to sound very creepy. And I want you to hold on to that creepy feeling. Do not let it fly away. Hold on to it because you are a better person than David is. Let me show you. So anyway, Absalom, it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Verse 3. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. In other words, Jonadab was David's brother's son, David's nephew. Jonadab is the cousin of Amnon. Anyway, Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Is the, are the creepy feelings staying? I hope so. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. The word special bread actually comes from the word, the Hebrew word for heart. So he might be asking for special bread. He might be asking for love bread, like a romantic style of bread. He might be asking for heart-shaped bread. We don't actually know. But he uses the word heart that then we translate special because we're not exactly sure what it means. But he says, I want her to make some heart bread, some special bread in my sight so that I may eat it from her hand. Yuck. Um, okay, here's something you need to know. David should have realized that this whole scenario sounded creepy for a number of reasons. Number one, now, of course, their value system back then is a little bit different than our value system today, but I think some of the value systems should have crossed back into the old days as well. And one of those things is you don't objectify women. You don't treat women like they're just objects or servants or, or things to give men pleasure. That has always been inappropriate for God's people. And so here's this guy and he's pretending to be sick and he's pretending like the thing he really needs is to be able to stare at his sister. Like, that's the thing that's going to save him. Dad, I just want to stare at my sister while she cooks some food. Can I do that? Would you send her to me so that I can do that? That's 
A, creepy. B, I want her to make some very special bread. Now, he's the king's son. The cooks could make this bread. Anyone could make this bread. Maybe, I don't know if he's married. If he is married, his own wife could make this bread. I don't know any of the story about his past because we don't know that part of the story. But he's like, I want her, this one particular girl, to make special bread for me. And, and, then, I want her to bring it to me so I can eat it from her hand. This makes no sense. It is creepy. It is disgusting. And the red flags are all over it. But I got to let you know something. David is one of the guys in the whole world who would never be able to see it. Because just last week, we read the story of David going up onto the palace, the roof of his palace, And he looks around and he sees a woman who's off limits to him. And he says to his servant, who is that woman? Bring her here to me. Do you see the parallel? That's going to happen all through this story today. The parallel of what David did last week in our story comes back again this week. Now it's Tamar who's been looking at his sister and thinks she's beautiful. And he says to his dad, as if his dad is the message boy now, right? David has lost so much power. He says to his dad, as if his dad is the message boy, go and get me that girl. And David can't see it. And you know why? I believe David is disabled in his judgment. I believe his own sin has caused him to be disabled in this particular way. David can't see how creepy his son is being because David's own heart is just as creepy. Does that make sense? Because David's own heart has the same attitude towards women as Amnon does towards Tamar, David can't see how bad this is. Hopefully you can. But David can't. And it's because of his own sin that now his judgment has been disabled. Now, I could make a whole bunch of points about this today and how, you know, your own sin can disable your judgment, but we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and so we've got to keep moving. Because what happens next is David is not just disabled in his judgment, he actually enters into the situation and he makes it worse. See what happens here. Pick it up in verse 7. David sent, okay, that's our key word. Do you remember last week we spent all this time on the send word and how David is trying to use his power by sending people around? We see that again. Here it's David trying to hang on to some type of power. But it says, David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it in his sight. It shows up a lot of times. In his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, (laughs) bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. Quick pause here. Um, Ladies, Tamar is not doing anything wrong here. She is not guilty in the slightest way. However, please don't be so naive. Just saying, it's okay for you to simply just avoid the creepy dude. 
Just avoid the creepy dude. Anyway, that's my minor advice to women. But Tamar is not at fault in any way for what happens next. Bring here the food. Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. There it is. He's like, I know I can't marry you, so I will rape you. And she says, no, talk to the king. We can get married. We're just half brother and sister. He would actually give me to you as a wife. She doesn't say she wants to be married, but at least it's more honorable than what's about to happen. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Who sent Tamar to Amnon? David. Right? Not only was David disabled in his judgment and had no idea how creepy and bad this situation was, he actually enabled it. He's actually the one who let it happen, made it happen. He is the active agent who put Tamar into the location where Amnon was. And so his activity, his own sin in his own past, the fact that he hadn't dealt with it, now has enabled a very similar sin in someone else. Now, David isn't the number one person at fault here. It's Amnon who is at fault here. And we need to recognize that the majority of the guilt lays on Amnon's shoulders, and that's okay for us to recognize that. Tamar, even though she could have been smarter, she is not guilty. But David is definitely complicit in this because he's the one who should have seen the warning signs and didn't do anything then. Instead, he did actually the wrong thing, sending Tamar right into Amnon's hands. Now, I want to take an aside here to talk about some of the issues surrounding what we've just seen. For example, one of the issues is that the word rape is used in this passage. Last week, I told you last week the word rape doesn't show up. And so some people have used this as an example of how David and Bathsheba was not a rape situation. David and Bathsheba was a consensual, adulterous relationship. And this is a rape situation because the narrator knows the word rape, and he clearly didn't use that word with what David did with regard to Bathsheba. And listen, what I have to say is that that whole dichotomy that says it's either rape or it's consensual sex. That whole dichotomy is based upon ignorance. As if either a woman is physically forced into sex or she's all in for it. As if there's only these two options. But there is a huge gray area in the middle. A huge gray area that is called coercion, that is called um, compliance, that is called power struggles. 
And so I used the word rape last week to talk about what David did to Bathsheba because the power dynamic was such that she couldn't say no. The circumstances around that were such that she couldn't say no. The narrator uses the word rape for this situation because physical force was involved. Amnon physically overpowered Tamar, who was trying to get away. Bathsheba couldn't have gotten away because her husband was on the battlefield and David was in charge of that whole situation. There's still a power thing. It's just not physical control. And so I think our modern word rape applies to the David and Bathsheba thing, even though the ancient word rape applies to just this one. Does that make sense? But there's a bigger picture. Because see, what I've just done is I've told you that both of these situations are wrong, but I haven't given you any picture of what is right or what right should be. And when it comes to sexuality, our modern culture has it so weird Our modern culture says that consent is all that matters. But the problem is you and I know, I change my mind on a dime. And I can feel like something is a good thing to do right now. And five minutes later, I can feel like it's a bad thing to do. Or maybe I'm, you know, I'm driving my car to some location and halfway to the location, I'm like, you know what? I really want to go somewhere else. And I go somewhere. I I change my mind all the time. And so consent is a terrible, a terrible measurement to determine whether or not some sexual activity is good. Maybe in our society that makes it acceptable, but that doesn't make it good. And so I want to take a brief little aside to talk about what the Bible has to say about sexuality, what the Bible has to say about sexual relationships, okay? So we're going to look at a couple passages that are outside 2 Samuel. We'll come back to 2 Samuel because this story is really important. We're going to get back to it in just a little bit. And I'm, I'm just going to jump out of this story to give you a couple other things to think about. We go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 has God creating sexuality by making a woman and bringing that woman to the first man. And it says this, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now the Hebrew word for man is ish and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. And so they they have this sort of relationship similar to our man woman thing. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The picture from the earliest days of God inventing sexuality goes like this. The woman came out of the man, God gave her to the man, and the two of them are united together as one flesh. But there are two very important aspects to this story that I want to highlight for you. In that passage, it said, this is why the man leaves his father and mother and will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. There are two concepts. The first concept is the man leaving all others leaving father, mother, leaving all these other relationships that he's got, leaving others and uniting to his wife. Uh, That's the word we, that's the idea we use today behind the word marriage. So leaving and uniting is what we call marriage. 
the commitment from this guy to leave all other relationships and be united to his wife, that's what we mean by marriage. It is a lifelong commitment because I have left all other commitments and I'm united to this commitment. So it's a lifelong, enduring commitment, marriage. But there's a second concept. And the second concept is when it said, and they became one flesh. They became one flesh. And this is a visual picture of the rib, the man whose body was sort of separated to create the woman, and then the two of them come back together again, and they become one flesh. This is the picture of something I would call physical mutuality. Each of us is physically only a part of this thing that's happening. And so human marriage and human sexuality is composed of these two elements from the earliest days of creation, where God would say, here's what it's going to be. It's going to be about uniting together a lifelong commitment that we use the word marriage to talk about, a lifelong commitment, and a one flesh relationship. There's physicality, there's mutuality, there is a unity there. The problem is that one flesh doesn't expand for us the picture of what mutuality looks like. What does it mean for both of us to only be part of the body in this situation? Each of us is only a portion of the total body here. Well, what does that mean? Well, I actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul will give us some guidelines in verse 4 about this exact idea. Paul says this. He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Paul is amazingly using the exact same verbs for the guy and the girl. This is important. Neither the guy nor the girl is more than the other one in this relationship. They are on exactly the same playing field when it comes to this physicality thing. There is no one who is like the person in charge. You notice authority, neither one of them gets authority. Neither one of them gets authority. The husband is not the authority over his own body. The wife is not the authority over her own body. Now, I know some people hear that and they're like, oh, so the woman doesn't have authority over her own body. I'll take it, you know? And no, that's not what he says. No one has authority over anyone's body. What happens is yielding. The wife yields to the husband. The husband yields to the wife. The best term I've ever come up with this is the word generosity. That the idea of sexuality inside of a marriage, the idea of a God-honoring sexuality, comes from this foundational idea of generosity. My whole entire aim is to be generous towards the other person, not taking anything from the other person, but giving. And so here it is. This is my summary statement. Biblical sex is marital bodily generosity. Marriage refers to the lifelong commitment. Bodily refers to the physical activity of one fleshness. And generosity refers to the attitude behind it all. That my idea is to make a lifetime commitment to this other person and then to give myself fully to this other person. 
Now, this doesn't exclude mental generosity. This doesn't include, it doesn't exclude emotional generosity. It includes all those other things. But those other things don't get labeled sex. When the Bible is talking about sexual activity, it's referring to a bodily generosity. And that leads me to something that I think is just super, super crazy important for our society today. When it comes to sexuality, from God's perspective, he's not looking for consent. I mean, if there isn't consent, there's a problem there, but that's not what he's looking for. God isn't looking just for consent. He's looking for two related words, context and intent. He's not looking for consent. He's looking for context and intent. The context, lifelong commitment. The intent, generosity. Every sexual moment for God-honoring people should be filled with this sentence. This moment is to confirm my lifelong commitment of generosity towards you. Notice I'm not using the word love here. Love is such a fickle word. It's such an it's such a attitude-changing kind of word. Some days I feel like I love peanut butter. Some days I feel like I love something else. You know, love is such a, is such a fickle word. But this idea that sexuality is supposed to be a person saying, with this activity, I reaffirm my lifelong commitment to be generous towards you. That's what it's about. That's why literally every time I do a, a wedding ceremony, I never have the couple say, I will love you and honor you and cherish you as long as you love me and honor and cherish me back. Like, it doesn't happen that way. The marriage commitment is always a one-way commitment. I choose to be generous to you, regardless of anything else. Now, that's my little soapbox aside on biblical sexuality. And the reason that's so important is that if we get this right, I kid you not, if we get this right, at least among Christians, if we get this right, then we completely eliminate all of the energy behind sexual exploitation in our communities. We completely eliminate all of the energy behind the objectification of women. We completely eliminate all of the energy behind the kind of harassment that goes on even in the context of churches, the kind of sexual abuse that goes on in churches. We eliminate all of that as long as we just get this one thing right in the context of a lifelong commitment with the intent to be generous. If you get that right, all the rest of these problems fade away. That's why it's so important. But we have to get back to our story because we're only a few verses into chapter 13 and we got a long ways to go. So let's jump back into it. Chapter 13, verse 15, and let's find out what happens next. Right after Amnon raped Tamar, it says this, verse 15, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done. But he refused to listen to her. 
He called his personal servants and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Somehow everybody knew that Amnon was after her right? Because Absalom can guess it immediately. Has Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. I love Absalom's tenderness here towards his sister. But it raises a question for me. It says that David was furious, and then the sentence immediately changes to more Absalom. Did you notice that? Isn't that weird? Like, David is the one who causes Tamar to go to Amnon. David is the dad. He's Tamar's dad. He should be feeling something for her. He is Amnon's dad. He should be feeling something towards him. He is Absalom's dad. He should be feeling something towards him. David, we get one sentence. David is furious. And Absalom, we're back on Absalom again. He is the sentence subject for one, only one sentence. And he's outraged but completely inactive. Huh, that happens today. People getting outraged about something and then just not doing anything about it. They're just, I'm just going to yell about it. I'm just going to be like, oh, this is so terrible. Oh, what's for dinner? You know, it's like David is outraged but can't be bothered to do anything. And this is why that's important. Because David is literally ignoring a command of God in order to maintain his inactivity. Now, granted, David probably is feeling really guilty. I mean, I imagine he finds out that Amnon rapes Tamar, and he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness, that's almost exactly what I did to Bathsheba. The only difference was she was married, Tamar wasn't married, but oh my goodness, what can I say to Tamar to comfort her? I don't know how to comfort her. What do I say to Amnon to challenge him? I don't know what to do. He's without any guidance. He's just angry. He's just furious. He has no guidance because he hasn't paid attention to God's word. Let me show you. In Deuteronomy, there is a literal, literal description of what should be done in this exact situation. Check it out. Deuteronomy chapter 22. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Now, I know some of you think that is incredibly gross because it does sound incredibly vicious to force the woman to live with this rapist, right? That sounds incredibly bad. And I'm not going to make a judgment call on that particular aspect because I see what God was getting at when he gave this law in the first place. You see, what happened back in that society is that if you were a woman who had been raped, it doesn't matter. The fact that someone has slept with you means that you are now damaged goods, means that you are now not worth anything means that you are now destitute. If Absalom hadn't taken Tamar into his own house, no one else would have. 
because she is a destitute woman. She has been violated. And so what God does is he says, if you are guilty of rape, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you pay that girl's dad a fine, and you are going to provide housing, shelter, and food, and security for that woman for the rest of her life. That's what he's saying. He's saying because that woman has been violated, you are required to cover all of her expenses for the rest of her life. That's the command. It's not a command that now she has to marry you and she has to live with you and and all this other kind of stuff. No, it's God giving a command that the rapist is supposed to financially support this woman for her whole life. That's what the heart is behind this command. Now we come to the story. David has just found out that there was a man who met a virgin who was not pledged to be married to another man, and he raped her, and what happens next? Nothing. See, it was Amnon's responsibility to then marry Tamar like she had suggested, get over his stupid hatred, and be a better husband, and be a reconciled, repaired individual. And it was David's job to ensure that that would happen. But it doesn't. And so in this power vacuum, Absalom is the one who brings Tamar into his home and shows her love and care. And in this power vacuum where David is not doing anything, Absalom is going to take matters into his own hands. Not to make Amnon marry Tamar, but to go farther. Keep reading. See what happens. Verse 23. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and all his and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. This is one more picture of David being inactive, right? David is inactive. He has an opportunity to do something, to be there in the midst of the situation, but he doesn't. He says, no, I'm not going. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, well, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. Interesting situation here. In the previous story, David raped a woman, and then after that followed it up with a murder. In this story, a man rapes a woman, and it gets followed up with a murder. In David's story, David doesn't actually commit the murder. He has other people do the murder for him. In this story, Absalom doesn't actually commit the murder. He has other people do the murder for him. Do you see the parallels? They are obvious. 
It's because the sin of David not being checked in David's own heart has led to that evil spreading throughout his family. It has hit Amnon and Tamar and Absalom and now it's hitting Amnon again. In this whole situation, David is still doing nothing. What is he supposed to do next? Well, let's look at what happens. Verse 37, skip all the way down to 37. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. Talmai, by the way, is his granddad. Uh, But King David mourned many days for his son. Okay, so David feels sad. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. What that means is Amnon was dead. David mourned for Amnon, and then after he was done mourning for Amnon, he said, oh, I really wish I could go see Absalom, which he could, because Absalom's grandfather, Talmai, was the guy who gave David his daughter so that David could marry that girl. In other words, he's David's father-in-law too. David could totally go to him. Why doesn't he? There is something so wrong with David, and I don't know all of his motivations, but I can sympathize with them. Because see, if I put myself in his shoes, I know what shame and fear feel like. I know what it's like to have done something really bad and then to feel shame about it and feel like, well, I can't, I can't address Amnon's sin because I'm guilty of the same thing and I helped make it happen. I can't address Absalom's sin because I'm guilty of the same thing and I helped make it happen. And I can't go to Absalom because that would be endorsing him as my son somehow. And I I stay here. You know, the, the text of the Old Testament would tell David he's supposed to kill Absalom for murdering his brother. And then David is once again in this sort of like place where he's just stuck in inaction because his own moral failings, his own guilt, his own shame, his own fear, his own sin has caused him to be inactive. And he has no idea how to solve this problem. And so he just does nothing. Well, I'm not going to read the rest of chapter 14 for you. I'm going to narrate the story for you because it's a long story. It's convoluted. And if I, if I read it, uh, then I'll have to explain it. And that doubles our time. So let me just try to narrate the story a little bit for what happens in chapter 14. So Absalom is staying with his grandfather and his family. And he's been there for like three years. And Joab, David's Uh, general, David's soldier, his general of all of his armies, the head of all the armies, Joab says, okay, I need to figure out a way to get Absalom back because it's not good to have the king's son so far away and have the king so mopey. It's been three years. He's been mopey. It's time for us to get over it. So Joab says, I'm going to get David to bring Absalom back. And so then Joab finds this woman who's from a town called Tekoa, and she's identified as a wise woman, but we don't get her name. And then Joab concocts a story with this woman, and she comes and tells this story to David. And um, just side note, parallel, do you remember after David did his thing where he raped a woman, and then he killed a guy, and then a prophet came and told him something, and made up a story, and then David got his act together, and then he repented, and he did something? You know, same thing happens here, chapter 14. It's just not a prophet, it's this woman that Joab convinced to come and tell him. So anyway, this woman comes, and she tells a story. She says, I have two sons, and one of my sons killed the other son. And my first son is now on the run because everybody else was trying to kill him. So David, you're the king. 
And she flatters him with a whole bunch of flattery. She says, she says, you're the king. Would you issue a decree that my son, the murderer, could come home and no one would kill him? And David says, you better believe it. I'll issue that decree. It's the right thing for your son to come back. And then she says, aha, why don't you do it with your son? And David is like, um, okay, did Joab put you up to this? And she goes, yeah, it was Joab. And so then David turns to Joab and he says, okay, you go and get Absalom and bring him back. David still doesn't go. He still sends someone else to go and bring back his son. And what's weird, oh, there's something really weird in this whole thing. There's a, there's a verse that the lady says that I want to show you. It's, it's verse 14 of chapter 14, 2 Samuel 14, 14. The lady says this phrase. She says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But this is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And then David says, okay, well, send Joab and he'll go bring him back. Pick it up in verse 23. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. See, if Absalom sees the face of the king, then the king is giving sort of a, a stamp of approval on Absalom and David doesn't want to do that. But then it says here in verse uh, 23, excuse me, we just did 23 and 24, skip to 33. And it says, so Joab went to the king and told him this. The king summoned Absalom and he came and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king finally kissed Absalom. The way the story goes is that Joab goes, he gets Absalom, he brings him back to Jerusalem. Absalom stays in the city of Jerusalem for two years, doesn't see the king at all. At the end of those two years, he's so upset that he lights Joab's field on fire. And Joab says, where'd you do this? And Absalom says, because I want to see my dad. And Joab's like, okay, fine, I'll get him. And he goes and he gets David, he brings him back. And then Absalom meets David and David kisses him. But that's it. There's no, there's no, con, no conversation, no, no talk of reconciliation or anything. It's just that. And there's one other thing. If I had read the story out loud, if I had read chapter 14 out loud, you might have picked it up, but I doubt you would have because I never picked it up either until this last week. There's a weird thing that happens in chapter 14. If you have the Bible in front of you, go ahead and scan it from beginning to end, and you will notice the word David doesn't show up once. It is entirely absent from the chapter. Because the narrator is trying to make a point. Oh, the word king shows up all over the place. The king this, the king that, the king this, the king that. Absalom can't see the king's face. Absalom finally does see the king's face. It shows up time and time again. The king, the king, the king, the king, the king. But David, the word David doesn't show up once. Instead, you get Joab, and you get Absalom, and you get an unnamed woman from Tekoa, and you get all these other players, but you don't see David's name. Do you know why? Because in this whole story, you've seen it already. You just didn't know it. You didn't notice it. David has been disappearing from the beginning. 
From the very beginning of the story, David is not the one who's in charge of everything. David is not the one who's controlling the situation. Everyone else is controlling the situation around him. Joab's doing his stuff. Absalom's doing his stuff. Amnon's doing his stuff. Everyone else is doing their stuff. And David is just fading away into nothingness. And I got to tell you, I understand this. I've been there. Maybe you've been there too. It's this, this idea that I've, I've shamed myself by doing something wrong. I'm no good to the people around me. I'm no good to the thing that I was supposed to be doing. And out of my own shame, out of my own fear, I'm just going to withdraw a little bit. And then people are going to ask me to come back in, and I'll come back in, but I come back in as a wounded, frail individual, and I make the wrong choice at the wrong time, and I make it worse. And so I step back out a little bit more. And then they say, come on back. There's this thing. And so I step back in, and I get involved a little bit. And because I'm broken, because I've got so much stuff, because I've got my own shame, my own guilt, my own sin hasn't been totally dealt with, I make another bad choice. And then I realize I'm just no good for this situation. I'm just going to hole up in my palace and we'll keep Absalom in Geshur or we'll bring him back to town, but I won't see him or I'll finally see him and I'll just, I'll just give him a kiss on the forehead and then turn away. The whole story, David has just been disappearing and it's understandable because it's the thing that I would do. It's the thing that a lot of us would do. But that's why that verse is so weird. The thing that that lady said, like water poured on the ground. What happens when you pour water on the ground? Doesn't it just soak in and disappear? She's using this analogy of a thing that is just It used to be refreshing. It used to be beneficial. And now it's wasted and disappearing. And she says, but that's not the way God wants to work. You know the way God wants to work? What God is up to right now is that he is trying to find ways to get the banished person back. The word that we would use for that is the word reconciliation. And that's because God is working all the time towards reconciliation. He's trying to bring people back into relationship with him. David's relationship with God is broken even though he was forgiven, even though he had the the consequence at the end of the previous chapter. David's heart is still where it was. He's still just as broken. He's still just as sinful. He's still so messed up. And so what God does, oh my goodness, this is amazing. God puts David in exactly the situations David had previously been in so that David can fix the problem now right? God put David in conversation with Amnon while Amnon is like, I'm looking at that girl. She's pretty hot. And I'd like to have her. David could have said something. He was the intervener who could have stopped it, but he doesn't. And then that carries on. And then he could have done something about the rape, but he doesn't. And so what God was doing, I see this, what God was doing is he was giving David the opportunity to make things right. The opportunity to reconcile his heart with where God wanted him to be. And he wouldn't engage 
Instead, he stayed further and further distant. He was the water spilling on the ground. But what God wants is he wants reconciliation so bad that he won't give up. Even at the end of the story, now David has the chance to reconcile with Absalom. And you'll notice that he doesn't. You'll notice all he does is he gives him a little welcome home kiss, and that's it. And because he fails to do that reconciliation, next week is going to happen. And it's terrible. But I want to encourage you to be different. I want to encourage you and me to be different people. I I don't want us to be the kind of people who are tempted into disappearing. I don't want us to be the kind of people who just, we've made mistakes and then we let those mistakes build on other mistakes. I don't want us to be that kind of family. I don't want us to be that kind of church. I don't want me to be that kind of person. I want to be a person who lets God do the work in me that he needs to get done so that then God can do the work through me that he wants to get done. God is a God of reconciliation. He's working at it right now. He's working at it in me and he wants to work at it through me. If God could get the work done in David, then David could have done the work for Amnon, or he could have done the work for Tamar, or he could have done the work for Absalom. Yes, there's a whole lot of bad stuff that happened in the story, but if the work of reconciliation had happened in David, it could have happened to all the rest of them. And that's the point. If I don't deal with the sin in my life, the evil is going to spread. But if I get reconciliation right in my life, then reconciliation can be the thing that spreads. And we need to be that. Because some strange woman from Tekoa says that that's what God is all about, and she is absolutely right. So I beg you, don't disappear. Instead, Be a person who recognizes something that David couldn't. That God's grace and his forgiveness are thorough and total and deep. And right now, right now, what I want you to do is to join me in this attitude that says, God, whatever's going on in my life that needs to be reconciled, that needs to be resolved, God, I want you to be the Lord. I want you to be the one who changes me. We're going to sing a song that just declares that Jesus is Lord of all, but that only makes sense if Jesus is Lord of my life. And so I invite you to join me to say, God, I want you to be the Lord right now in my heart. Do the work of reconciliation in me so that then I can be an agent of reconciliation through me. Let's take a few moments in quiet reflection opening yourself up to God, speaking those whispers into your heart. And let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.